0: Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Was it the start of something bigger and more far spread? And we all kind of said, those who believe, we said, oh Lord Jesus, please let me so. But now the Aspire Awakening has receded like a wave on the shore and it seems that we may have to wait a little longer for a great and mighty move of God. In Christian circles, if we speak of both revival and revolution in the same sentence, which we seldom do, then we usually refer to revival or revolution. Or, you know, we put the or word in, rather than revival and revolution. So what we're implying by by this, I guess, is that only a Holy Spirit revival will prevent our nations from fragmenting into revolution. I'll put it another way. We see revival as the antidote to rapidly deteriorating conditions in our world. You know, that if revival comes, it'll all go away, all the bad stuff will go away, and it'll be wonderful. Unfortunately, history doesn't support, not fully anyway, this kind of idea. But but before going any further, I want to explain that I'm using the word revolution in its broader sense. I'm talking about a radical and pervasive change in society which often is accompanied by violence, but not always. I'm not talking about something that always leads to the storming of the Bastille, you know, the assault on the Houses of Parliament to a a, a coup de grace, something of that nature. I'm talking about something which is a radical and persuasive change in society, but it's uh, often a violent and very unsettling and disruptive change in society. You know, the greatest revivals have had profound influences on their host nations, and even the world. Uh, They brought about change and, in at least one case, even moved the nation itself away from a devastating armed revolution. That was Wesley protecting the United Kingdom from the French Revolution, not politically, but by a in revival. And I'll tell you what, almost all historical revivals were messy, controversial, polarizing, and relatively short-lived phenomena, albeit, of course, with long-term residual influence. I'll tell you again, uh, a historic observation, at least by myself, is that revivals usually occur in parallel to ongoing conditions of revolution. They don't kind of sweep them away. They arise up in the midst of, in parallel, to tough times. Now, I live in a nation where the ruling party calls itself a revolutionary movement. And true to its own self-description, it has in fact brought us to a state of national revolution, which might well lead to an armed revolution, some kind of a civil uprising. The non-Christian majority in our country and in the world, I guess. clamors for change, they want change. Yet, ironically, they employ the strategies of revolution as an antidote to revolution. You know, the revolutionists march to get power, threatened, cajoled, bribed, etc. And they try the same tactics, which really doesn't make sense to me. On the other hand, the Christian minority, certainly in our land, tends to just pray and hope for revival to save our land. However, is this a valid hope? Or are we more likely to have both revival and revolution occurring simultaneously in our near future? The greatest revival recorded in the Bible was the very first of the New Testament, what we call today the day of Pentecost, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Initially, only about 120 were affected, but within a few days, a few thousand were added. But from then on, the revival grew and spread until 2,000 years later, there is hardly a nation on earth that has not been affected by it. Mighty revival that continues to sweep the earth, in parallel to times of great upheaval and revolution. Sometimes revivals have um, burned bright and hot, but I, I guess these have been like lightning flashes followed by long periods characterized by both growth and decline. In our generation, the life of the Holy Spirit indwells the heart of probably no more than about a tenth of the world's population, although 30% describe themselves as Christians. So these relatively few followers of Jesus live all over the globe, and many are in countries where armed conflict rages, corruption and degradation rule, hunger and sickness constitute their own form of deadly revolution. Yet in the midst of that, in parallel to that, God is doing mighty and wonderful things. So what should we, you and I, expect of the darkening, revolutionary future storming towards us? Well, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, presents a graphic portrayal of all ages, from the first to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We can find evidence of the forces it describes in every age over the last 2,000 years, but it also gives us insight into the kind of world in which we live right now. I've actually written a book explaining the structure and general trends, principles and powers presented in the book of Revelation. And you can find it just by clicking on TruthIsTheWord.com. At the top there are a number of tabs. Click on the books tab and there you'll see it featured. But for this truth talk, I want to confine myself to ju- just one chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And I will only give some of the detail that I presented in far more quantity in my book. So if you would like to learn more about it, then go ahead and get the Kindle or even the paperback versions through Amazon. So, Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 to 12 reads as follows. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it has been given over to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying, And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, nation, will gaze on their bodies and will refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Now, don't don't get thrown by the extreme language and imagery that's uh, thrown your way in chapter 11. The book of Revelation is full of powerful imagery, but rather focus on the following key aspects drawn from the text. I'll give you just three key aspects to focus on. One. Now, the temple in in this account represents the church, which, like the temple of old, contains an outer court of nominal professing Christians and a holy place of genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The imagery is from Ezekiel chapters 40 to 44, where the following verses are particularly pertinent. They, they, They say this Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them, so they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. That's in Ezekiel 43 verses 10 and 11. So it appears that John was equating the church with Ezekiel's temple. Only priests were allowed to enter into the holy place. And John told them to ignore the outer court where the Gentiles were. And in Revelation one six and chapter 5.10, John refers to Christians as priests. And, and so it seems that in the allusion to the temple, he is distinguishing between true believers and nominal Christians, between those who worship God in spirit and truth and those who just claim to do so. Okay, two, second key. Observation. The world, including apostate Christendom, will trample on the true church for a period specified as 42 months or 1,260 days. Another way of saying the same thing. The prophetic month consists of 30 days and so 1,260 days equates exactly to 42 months. The same symbolic period appears in Revelation 12 verse 14 as time, times and half a time, in other words, three and a half years. And we should not take the numbers in Revelation literally. So the question concerns what this period symbolizes. In Revelation 11 which I've read to you, the period relates to the ministry of two witnesses who have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time of their prophesying. The allusion must be to the prophet Elijah who proclaimed a a three-and-a-half year drought in Israel. Jesus spoke of this when he compared the people of his time with those in ancient Israel. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. You'll find that in Luke 4.25. So the two witnesses represent an Elijah-like ministry. However, John also describes them as having the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, and this is a reference to Moses. He displayed the mighty power of God in liberating his people from Egypt. Elijah symbolizes the prophetic ministry of the church in judging apostate Christendom, and Moses is a symbol of the apostolic ministry of the church in protecting the true believers. Revelation 12 verse 14 picks up on this second function where it describes God taking the church into the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, and times and half a time, there's that period again, out of the serpent's reach. So apostate Christians equate to those in the outer court of the temple and true Christians to those in the inner court. And these two witnesses symbolize these two powerful ministry of those in the Holy of Holies, the inner place, the, the place where the Christian true believers are. Third key takeaway. There is a strong correlation between Jesus' ministry and that of the church. Jesus ministered for 42 months, during which he displayed mighty signs and wonders, judged the apostate church of his day, and made a way of salvation for all who would follow him. At the end of that period, Jesus was put to death, yet he rose again. As a parallel, towards the end of the period of the end time, Elijah and Moses like ministries of the church will be put to death, yet it too shall rise. Revelation 11, 7-11, to reinforces this correlation, and verse 12 describes the ascension of the church into heaven after its period of powerful ministry and persecution. So this strange and striking pictures, imagery in the book of Revelation, speak about a mighty revival, about the church being mightily revived in the in, in two major parts of witness, where it powerfully, in the Spirit of God, reaches out and impacts society around it, and at the same time protects its believers. But in the end, apostasy, government, military power, financial economy rising up, they're called, that's called the, the beast in the book of Revelation, will destroy the church. And people will think it's dead. But they thought Jesus was dead. And Jesus rose again. And they'll think the church is dead. But the church will rise again. A mighty revival followed by the end of time. So, mighty revivals come first to the church and then to society. The first effect of revival that it serves to judge the condition of the church and to separate the true from the false. True believers experience and participate in the empowering influence of the Holy Spirit And false believers and unbelievers criticize them and seek to persecute them. So, we long for revival, yet we often fail to grasp that revival has an enormously disruptive effect on the church. Even among true believers, as opposed to nominal Christians, religious people, the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit tests, refines, and separates the flesh from the Spirit. And for this reason, real revivals are messy as well as painful. Messy because immature believers let their emotions get the better of them and become extremely disruptive and painful because normal Christians criticize, sanction and make life tough for all in the revival. Both the messy ravers and the more balanced disciples, everybody gets criticized. Secondly, true revival burns bright for just a short period of time during which it has profound influence on the church and society generally. When it dies down and the smoke of its fire clears, then all can see a transformed church and a radically impacted society. This church continues to work influencing society with truth and light. And over time, this can give rise to transformed governance, Governments of nations, businesses, families, and so on. So a third point to note is that revival happens within the context of revolution. It's revival and revolution, folks. It does not replace revolution, but rather mitigates and redirects it in key ways. Although modern versions translate Isaiah fifty-nine nineteen differently, the old New King James Bible still has it this way. He writes, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Ain't that the truth? Now I like this because it describes a divine principle we see repeated throughout history. The flood of revolution and the raised up standard in the midst of the flood of revival. The flag of Jesus. Perhaps one final thing to note is that certainly the revival of Revelation 11 portrays Revival in general, yeah, but more specifically, the last and greatest revival of history as we know it. I believe we are living in the end times, when the revival we desire will be the final mighty blast of the trumpet of God. I suspect so, because who can know other than God himself? Hmm. Taking into account what I've said so far, do I still want to witness and participate in a mighty Holy Spirit revival? Yes, I do. In general, the truth is in a desperate need of shaking up and purifying, and only a God-given revival can do that adequately. My country might not pull back from the brink of the failed state, abyss without the restraint and transformation that revival would bring. Do I want revival? Yes, I do. Even if it is the last and most radical of all. Yes, because if it ushers in the second coming of the Lord Jesus, then how can I not pray for it to come? Revelation itself in chapter 22, verses 20 to 21 ends, ends the whole of the Bible, by the way, with these wonderful words. Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you for listening to truth talks from truth is the word ministry if you'd like to share your views read up on related topics or purchase one of dr pebler's books please visit his blog on truthistheword.com and remember truth talks